0: All right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John's Gospel. We'll be looking at chapter six, John chapter number six. We'll be looking this morning at a fairly extended uh, section of scripture. We're going to be tackling verses fifteen through forty-one this morning. And if you're in John six, hold your finger there. And as promised, I want us to flip forward to John chapter number twenty. By way of introduction, we want to remind ourselves again of the purpose of John's gospel. So hold your place there in John 6. Turn forward to John chapter number 20, verse number 31. Hopefully, uh, by this point, maybe this is getting close to memory, or at least broken memory at this point, as we've uh, read this verse often during our uh, our short Time in the Gospel of John thus far, only making it through chapter 6, and you've probably heard um, John chapter 20, verse number 31, probably at least a couple dozen times, if not more than that, by now. So I would encourage you, if you have not done that, to maybe uh, spend some extended time in this verse and commit it to memory. And as we continue to work our way through the Gospel of John, we'll remind ourselves that this is the purpose of the Gospel It is the the grid that every passage, every paragraph, every word should be sifted through that we can look back to this purpose or forward to this purpose, depending on where we're at in the book, and say, how does this text, this scripture, uh, fit in with this purpose of John chapter 20, verse number 31? Read with me together. Let's read John chapter 20, verse number 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's do it one more time. John chapter 20, verse number 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This again is the purpose of John's gospel. So let's go back to our text in uh, chapter 6, again, verses 15 through 41. Let's go ahead and read our section of scripture and we'll open in a of prayer at conclusion of reading and get started this morning. John 6 verse number 15 reads, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus, excuse me, had not yet come to them. Verse 18, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Verse 22, "'On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberius had come near, excuse me, had came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks.'" So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Will give to you. On Him God the Father has set His seal. Verse 28, Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him then, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word that is swift and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword. And I pray that this morning that you would uh, breathe fresh new life into our hearts, our minds, that you would use your word as the hammer to break up. Uh, the cold, hard heart that many times uh, we carry uh, into worship. And I pray that as we sing these songs of praise and adoration, singing of your grace and your salvation and your character and your greatness in in creation, and, and so much theological truth was just proclaimed by way of song, I pray that that was not just vain repetition or that we hit autopilot on singing these songs, but I pray that you would use those truths, that you would use your word, use the Holy Spirit to stir us up even yet this morning. And That as a result of gathering together as your church, the body of Christ, that we would be changed to be more like Christ. So Father, I pray that you would do that work that I cannot do. And that is to take your word, to plant it in, into hearts and minds and that you would cause it to bear fruit even today. We commit this time to you. I pray that you would guard us from distraction guard us from the spiritual warfare of the enemy and let us for these few moments lean into your word and and look into it as a glass that we can behold ourselves and see father where you are showing us a need to change to confess sin and to become more like christ and so i pray to that end in jesus precious name we pray amen amen I don't know if you've ever used the English idiom, missed the boat. Have you ever heard that phrase before? You missed the boat? Um, I don't know if you use it that often, but probably whether you're young or old, you may have at least heard that phrase used every once in a while. And uh, I got to wondering or asking myself, what does that really mean? I think I know what it means, but I was going to use it in an illustration, so I figured I'd probably better know what it means. So I'm going to give you just a little background to make sure we know uh, what this English idiom is really talking about, right? Um, it isn't used in connection with obviously this imagery of the boat getting on board or missing the boat it has the idea of either boarding or missing the departure of that boat, right? It's an idea that typically means you're in agreement with a concept when we talk about getting on board with something or someone working with it to reap the benefits. So on the negative side, to miss the boat could be related related to the failure to get on board in time for a opportunity or something that you want to be a part of. Right? So if we can use the analogy, we're passengers and we're either going to get on board with the idea and support it from the positive sense, or on the negative sense, we're going to miss the boat. And we're going to uh, miss the idea or the concept and not be able to take advantage of the perceived benefits, right? So some examples of this, right? It could literally mean to fail to take advantage of an opportunity. Example, he missed the boat when he applied too late to get into college, meaning he can't do it until maybe there's another opportunity that will come around later in the year. Right. This phrase can also mean to miss the point of or fail to understand. So this is kind of the root of this phrase that I want to use as our opening illustration. An example, I missed the boat on that explanation. Hopefully this morning you're not going to say that, right? We're going to be careful to give you a good, clear explanation. If you leave this morning and say, I missed the boat on that explanation, that's not good. So hopefully you get on board with John 6 and and, and we can see this, this text change us this morning. But in relation to our text this morning, John chapter 6, verses 15 through 41, we're going to observe once again a group of people, a crowd that has gathered, that have completely missed the boat, so to speak, on who Jesus is, why he came, and what he is offering to all who will ultimately receive him. Let's remember in context that we have just seen Jesus do what? An incredible miracle of turning a young man's lunchbox into barrels of food to feed a weary multitude in a desolate place. You remember how wonderful that was as we went through that text as seeing this is God can literally multiply food for the benefit of a crowd that is gathered to hear his words and to observe a miracle. They're weary, they're tired, they're hungry, and Jesus, what, he cares? And he performs a miracle for the benefit of putting food in their bellies. This is how much Jesus cares. This is compassion. This is his human being of Jesus coming out here as he's moved, as he looks onto to this multitude. So what was the point of, of this miracle, right? It, that he performed this sign and wonder again to reveal the deity of himself, the deity of Christ, and strengthening the faith of those that were present to observe this miracle. So John chapter 5, it taught us that Jesus is the life giver. And it introduced this concept of bread. But it left us with the question on how he was going to give not just physical sustenance that would sustain life, but it left us with the question of how Jesus was going to deploy himself as the bread of life To give a sustenance for our soul and to meet our most desperate need. And that is the need of our sins being forgiven by the perfect and spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So here this morning in our text, we're going to make three main observations. We're going to look first at motives exposed from this crowd. We're going to look at, secondly, the miracles explained to this crowd. And secondly, we're going to look at an invitation extended to the crowd. So by way of introduction, I want to take verses uh, really 15 through 21 and kind of layer this into our introduction. There's really two settings in this paragraph that we're looking at, verses 15 through 41. It's a large section of Scripture. Verses 15 through 21 really are transitional, to get to the heart and the crux of this paragraph, which is introducing for the first time an I am statement in the Gospel of John, which is Jesus proclaiming, I am what? The bread of life. And so uh, by way of introduction, let's read verses 15 through 21 again. And let's give us some geographical and cultural context and kind of build the stage, if you will, that is going to introduce us into the latter part of this text where we're going to dive in deep to Jesus proclaiming he is the bread of life. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Um, Just pause there and Just put yourself in in Jesus' shoes for a moment. Uh, Jesus has just spent uh, this Passover time with this multitude that is gathered. He performed this great miracle of providing this food for them, their weariness in this desolate place. Uh, He demonstrated his compassion and care to this multitude. And what happened? This crowd, missing the boat again on who Jesus was and why he came, was attempting to hijack. Christ and his purpose and his mission when he came on earth, and they were going to take Christ to meet their own physical needs or their own personal expectations of who Christ was going to be. Finally, somebody comes on the scene who can teach with power and authority and can perform great miracles. So let's take this guy and let's turn him into a king so that he can overthrow what? An oppressive Roman empire. This is what the crowd was trying to do, hijack Christ's ministry. Turn him into a king that he never proclaimed to be. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But in a heavenly kingdom sense and not in an earthly kingdom sense. So no doubt this crowd was very confused. And again missed the boat on who exactly Christ was and why he came. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So here we have the disciples. They entered the boat, and they... Go um, across this lake uh, to the. They go from the east side over to Capernaum, which would be on the northwest side of this lake. And during the journey, they encountered this encountered this severe storm. And despite despite all of their, remember these guys are experienced. Uh, what would you call them, seamen? Right, these guys have been around. They know ocean. They know the sea. They know the water and. And they've been rowing. They've seen storms. They've been in perilous times on the water. And despite all their efforts and their experience, they can't navigate the storm. And they're spinning their wheels, so to speak. They've only gone three to four miles, not very far. They're literally right in the middle of the lake. And here it was that Christ comes out on the water, calmly approaching them. I want to talk a little bit about this sea so you can get some context of what's going on here. Again, I didn't necessarily know this stuff and you wouldn't unless you maybe dived into some geographical context so humor me as we go through some of this again to paint the picture and to set the stage of where these disciples were mentally spiritually physically around this storm and end up being in the middle of it so the sea of Galilee it's basically what they describe as a deep gouge in the Jordan rift it's surrounded by hills So the winds would frequently sweep down into this lake and literally stir these waters up into white caps. And so it's a lake, it's a sea, but it literally has the feel of being on the open ocean. And so this is where the disciples are at. Um, even in modern times today, they, they talk about power boats that would periodically be warned to remain on the dock as the winds would, would whip up and, and cause these white caps to be very dangerous for them to go out even in power boats. So can you imagine we've got the disciples in a wooden boat with the sail and oars and the storm sweeps in upon them and they're terrified. I mean, they literally have been rowing with all their might, all their experiencing, trying everything that they could to deploy, to get them to the other side, and they're stuck. Are, are you there with them? You see their, their mental state? They're, they're literally terrified. What have we gotten ourselves into? And then to make matters worse, they look out into the storm, to the Sea of Galilee, and they see somebody walking on the water. That's not normal. That doesn't happen every day, right? I mean... So now they're even terrified even more. We're in a horrible storm. We're in a wooden boat. And somebody's walking on the water coming towards my boat. Right? As you can see, the the frailty of their mind and their emotional state was not very solid at this point. And so here they were. They were literally frightened. Verse 19 describes. Then verse 20 comes along. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad To take him into the boat. Of course they're glad, right? It's Christ. It's Jesus. Surely He can get us through this, right? He's the one that's just done all these miracles. He's the one that teaches with all this power and authority. Thank you. Jesus, you've revealed yourself. You've come out on the water. That's an incredible miracle of itself. Again, displaying His deity and power over what nature, literally the elements to be able to walk on water. This is Jesus. The Christ, the Son of God. I mean, that's that's huge, right? In our Sunday school mentality, can't we just kind of skirt past some of the awe and the amazement of what's going on here? We've probably, most of us have heard this story a few handful of times, right? Jesus is walking on water. Just let that sink in. This is, this is our God. This is Jesus, our Savior. He has power over nature and over Even the elements of water. And the disciples are described as glad. And before we rush past this next verse, they were glad. And then what immediately happened? They took him in the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Wait a second. Jesus walking on water. He reveals himself as Christ, they gladly take him on the boat, and then immediately there's some divine intervention where Christ takes the boat through the storm to the end destination immediately. Have we st- have, have you read this passage before? I, I didn't see that the first time. There is a miracle upon miracle in this text here of verses 15-21 through that lay the context and the foundation for what Christ is about to do. Reveal Himself as the I Am, the bread of life. And He's layer upon layer building the case for Himself that His claim is true. And we can take it to the bank. Nobody can deny the authority and the power and the deity of Christ, as he once again reveals himself to the disciples in this strength-building and faith-building exercise. It's beautiful. So that's, a, that's setting the stage, if you will, for diving into verse number 22. And we have 15 minutes and three points to go through, so we need to hustle, all right? So verse number 22, our first point this morning is that we're going to look at motives Exposed And before we dive into motives exposed, I want to give us a big idea really to anchor us as we work through our text and our points this morning. The big idea of this passage is this. In context of John's gospel and the purpose of it, John 20 verse 31, is this. Because Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, he alone is the bread that offers life to eternally satisfy the hunger and thirst of our weary, sinful soul. Let me read that one more time. Again, this is going to be the anchor, to use boat analogy again. See that? right? This is going to be the anchor that's going to take us through our points this morning. Right Here we go. Because Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, He alone is the bread that offers life to eternally satisfy the hunger and thirst of our weary, sinful soul. is exposed. In context here, chapter 6, verse number 2. Let's read it. It says a, lar- in a large crowd was following him because they what? they saw signs that he was doing on the sick. So why is this crowd gathered? Once again, selfish, materialistic motives. They're out to follow Jesus just for what they can gain from it. This is why the crowd has gathered. Again, we're exposing motives as we work our way through this chapter, uh, chapter 6 of John's Gospel reminded us why the multitude of followers had gathered, namely because of the signs that he was doing on the 6th. Let's look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? If you just read that verse by itself, you're thinking, man, they might be actually getting somewhere with who Christ is and why he came. And are they, are they really getting on board? with who Christ is, and then 15 follows. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force. Do Do you see a motive there? There's some type of stir that was going on where Christ was perceiving this multitude that they were about to take him by force. For what purpose? To make him king. And as a result, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Verse 14 looks good at first glance, and the question is, did they finally get it? And we quickly answer, absolutely not. Verse 15 reveals that there was an unhealthy, even political, selfish buzz that began to develop that caused Jesus to take refuge back into the mountain. Let's look down to verse 26 as we again, layer upon layer, see the motives of this crowd like layers of onion, just peeled back. We see it more and more for what it really is. Verse 26 says this, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. It goes on, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal." Then they said to him, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Again, another aspect of motive here. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do? That they, that we may see and believe you. What work do you do? Do you perform? It's almost like they've just observed multiple miracles And they're trying to coax Jesus into performing another miracle for their own proud, selfish, materialistic purposes. Do we see the motives of this crowd just explicitly and clearly just coming forward with no question in mind that they were absolutely missing the boat on who Jesus was? So I, I think verse 26 and the verses to follow really are the nail in the coffin as we look at the motive of this crowd. Jesus cuts straight to the heart in exposing their motives. He chastises this crowd yet again, but in a surprising way. He exposes in our passage that the crowd was following him, not because they saw the signs, but rather because they had ate their fill. So this layers in another motive. They're thinking, wow, you know, times are tough. I live in agrarian culture and society. Man, maybe I can just follow this guy around and get a few free meals out of the deal. I mean, that's not a, right? that's not a bad deal. Three square meals, I'm, I'll follow this guy. That's not a bad gig, right? And so there, there's even this, this, this selfish layer of just having food in the belly that's, that's come up that Jesus is just exposing. So in this passage, we see clearly... As this motive is exposed, we see Christ contrasting over and over again, the eternal with the temporal, the material with the sacred. He's attempting to expose even to themselves so they could see it clearly that their motive is misplaced. And we see this in a culmination as there's this dialogue around the works of God. Verse 28 says, based off of Christ's description of, Verse 26 and 27, verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So here we have in this Old Testament Jewish mindset, they immediately divert to um, a law, a commandment, something to do as opposed to something that I am. Something to be a follower, disciple of Christ, to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. They have gone back to this uh, this reflex, if you will, of trying to earn favor in the eyes of God by keeping what the law. Earning grace upon my works. We know Ephesians 2 8 9 is a direct contrast that. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man what should boast. So we know that these these Jewish followers in this crowd have completely, again, missed the boat. Their understanding of the works of God is, okay, um, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Verse 27, for on Him God the Father has set His seal, His approval. So Jesus answers them in verse 29, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. You see the transition in these couple verses where it goes from personal labor for something that perishes, example, your own works. It transitions then away from that towards a work that God has done on our behalf. So do we not see here that salvation, as Christ is bringing forward this, this revelation, that this work is not of ourselves, or rather it's a work that God has done, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Jesus Christ, the one speaking. So this is the motive. So once again, Jesus is, uses this contrast of eternal and material as a means to expose the true motive of the heart. In essence, Jesus is criticizing them for not seeing the true meaning of the sign. He's going all the way back to the beginning of chapter 6 with the bread. And they're, they're missing the boat on what the point of that miracle was. They have seen something, namely bread multiplied, food in my belly, my hunger tangibly physically satisfied, They have seen something, but not everything. They've, they've missed the boat. One commentator put it this way, and I, I really appreciate this. It says this, instead of seeing in the bread the sign, they see in the sign only the bread. Did you get that? Can you connect with that? Can you see how, how they just, let me read that one more time. Instead of seeing in the bread the sign, they see in the sign only the bread. This reveals once again that their motive is purely materialistic and selfish in nature. We see that in verse number 26. We also see a misplaced hope in their religious works of verse 28. They've defaulted to earning favor in the eyes of God as opposed to Receiving the work that has already been done on their behalf, namely the Father sending the Messiah, staring them right in the eyes that they cannot recognize and respond to rightly. So as Jesus' works excuse me, as Jesus works to expose the motives of the crowd, he also reveals again the purpose and nature of his earthly ministry, but the question remains, will this crowd, as we continue to work through this passage, will they well, they see it. We are transition to our second point. Miracles explained to the crowd. We're going to move into this first I am statement in the gospel of John. We have in this passage, I am the bread of life. In, um in John six, verse number 35, we see it also in verses 48 and 51 down the road in our next uh, section of scripture, we'll see six other I am statements throughout the gospel of John. He will declare that he is, I am the bread, or excuse me, the light of the world in chapter eight. He will declare, I am the door of the sheep in chapter 10. He will declare, I am the good shepherd in chapter 10 as well. He will declare that I am the resurrection and the life in chapter 11. Chapter 14, very familiar. He will declare, I am the way, the truth and the life. And then finally in John chapter 15, he describes himself as the I am the true vine. So we have these very theologically rich almost linchpin statements that we can hang our hat on and anchor the text around this purpose of Christ revealing Himself to this crowd in a very unique, specific way, using the context of their own experience with Christ to declare, I am the bread of life. He's using the recent miracle that this crowd has personally observed, the bread being multiplied, to use this as a way to bridge and, and to further reveal himself to this crowd. But again, there's a struggle. There's a challenge in this this crowd of, of seeing that and receiving this truth that Christ is attempting to reveal to them. Let's look at verses 34 through 38 as we look at these miracles explained. And it's really going to focus around three different aspects that we see about God the Father. Okay, so the first one, we're going to see is the father's requirement in verse number 27. Verse number 27, we see the father's requirement. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God, the father has set his seal. Right. This is literally using uh, a very common analogy of a seal in those days where there would have been a letter, they would have put uh, a little, uh, what do you call it? Yeah, wax. I was going to say blob of wax. That was the only thing that was coming to my mind. It's a blob of wax on the piece of paper, and they would put a seal down, right? And this, this actually, to the one who receives it, reveals to them who it's from, right? From the householder, from the government, whoever it might be. So literally, God the Father has set His seal on Christ. So as they're interacting and seeing Christ reveal Himself to the crowd, the crowd should have recognized that Christ was sent from who? The Father. Because of His seal on Christ. You see, they should have recognized that the God the Father put his seal and and he's made this requirement and he's put his approval on the person and work of Jesus Christ as revealed in in chapter 6 and in the whole of, of John's gospel. So what is the Father's requirement as we see in verse 27? They recognize and respond to Jesus. Again, as we're going to layer in, ultimately, as the bread of life. We see, secondly, the Father's gift in verse 32. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So what's going on here? I guess we probably should have read uh, verse 31, right? So our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat, just as Jesus said to them, then our verses that we just read. So this crowd kind of gets a little, almost smart-alecky with, with Christ here, right? They're kind of getting a little short with him, and they're kind of throwing some jabs here in this exchange, and this dialogue. And ultimately, Jesus, okay, Jesus says, okay, you want to bring that up? Let's take that analogy and let's run with it. Let's use it to, again, attempt to reveal myself to this crowd. So what does he do? Jesus explains the Old Testament meaning of the manna from heaven and uses this Jewish Old Testament understanding to illustrate and affirm his deity as the bread of life that not only has been sent down from heaven, but more importantly from the Father. He's saying, look, crowd, you see this miracle of God providing manna in the wilderness For your people, as just that, food. That was a miracle. It was, again, it was about the bread that they ate and that it filled their tummies. But they totally missed the point that what was the point of, of that miracle? It was to foreshadow and look forward to Christ, the bread of life that God the Father would send down to His people again to reveal Himself and to offer life giving, eternal life for this people if they would simply see and believe in Christ as the bread of life. So this is the Father's gift. We see it in verse number thirty-two. Jesus then said, "Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven." And he describes what that bread is. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he's describing it. He's, and and who we know who that is. He's saying that's me, right? I'm the true bread. The Father sent me down from heaven. I'm here to give life. Verse 34, what was their response? They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Well, They, they resonated with this illustration. They resonated with thinking back of old, of how God provided for their people, of, of raining down manna from heaven. And you see this moment where it's like, again, is this another verse 14? Are they finally getting it? Did they... Are they going to respond to Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God? They missed the boat. Verse 35, and Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, but whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Christ sees right through their motives. He sees right through this disconnect that they're having. He's describing Himself as the true bread of life that's come down from the Father, just as the manna came down to, to, the, uh, to the people of Israel. And He's saying, I'm right here. I am the bread of life. I'm standing right in front of you. And the only thing you have to do is recognize and receive me as Savior and Lord, as the Messiah, the one prophesied of old, and I will offer you life and I will Quench every hunger and thirst that you ever have for your soul. And I will bring that to completion even on the day of the Lord. I will, pre- I will preserve that work until the end of, of time. And they miss it. They miss the point. So we see the Father's requirement, the Father's gift, and we see the Father's will in verse number 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose nothing, that I should lose nothing, nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father. He describes even further that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus again describes this. Uh, what's been described as the divine deference that exists within the Trinity, where Jesus has come on a mission to do what the Father's will, and He will be sure to see it through to completion. The term last day is is significant all through the Gospels and even the whole of Scripture, and this, this usage here is actually the first time that we see the appearance of this phrase in John's Gospel. And it should give the believer a sense of hope, just as Philippians 1.6 indicates, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work and he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's a completion and a finality to, to Christ and his work to take it all the way to the end. Nothing lacking, nothing lost, nothing else could overcome that work and Christ has secured and kept his people and his work to even the last day. Third and final point quickly, there was an invitation that was extended because coming to Jesus involves very much a divine dimension. We see in verse 37, the use of all believers. And then in verse 40, everyone who are enabled to come can have a sense of confidence and assurance that they will never be cast out by Jesus, nor misplaced or lost by Jesus. And we're going to see that come to life even more in John 10, as Christ declares, I am the good shepherd and he cares tenderly for his flock and for his people, just as we see described in Psalm 23. But here, however, this interpretation, no doubt, there's revealed attention, right? This um, eternal debate that will always Exist in Scripture between the divine and human elements of what? Salvation. Do we not feel that tension here in this passage, namely the gift of being chosen by the Father to the Son and then the human responsibility of the seeker or the follower to both see and believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. So friends, although there's a tension there, we can take great hope in This passage, as we see the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints come alive in our text this morning. And we know that the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is not based merely on human effort, but on the confidence that God is active both in the saving as well as in the preserving of those who commit themselves to serve God in Christ. And this, again, is the reality that we see in our text. There's hope. There is confidence. There is assurance that we find in this passage if we simply recognize and respond to Jesus as the bread of life and receive that breath and we're promised we're given life. We see that in verse number 33. That he's come down from heaven to give life. We see in verse 34, I am the bread of life. We see in verse number 40, um, it should have eternal life. And we see it a few more times earlier in the passage. This past passage is chocked full with Christ equaling life. He is the life-giving source and it's found in his person and work. And so friends, this morning the question remains this. Will we, like this crowd, miss the boat of who Jesus is and why he's come and what he's come to accomplish. Verse 41 is, is a sad ending to this passage of scripture. As we see, this crowd did miss the boat. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. This was their response. Jesus extended an invitation. He explained the miracle and ultimately, we see that this wasn't good enough for this crowd. They didn't see and respond to Jesus in life-giving faith, but rather they, they continued on in their own selfish motives as that was exposed over and over again in this passage. And so, friends, this morning, we're confronted with Christ, who he is, why he came, and as a result, what it provides for us on account of us recognizing and responding to those truths rightly. Let's close in a word of prayer as we ask the Lord to make sure that we don't miss the boat on who he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you've given us word. You've revealed yourself in scripture. I pray this morning that we would uh, take a moment to ask ourselves a question. Do we know this Christ in the way that's revealed in John chapter 6? Have we received this bread of life that offers Uh, the the quenching of our hunger and our thirst for all eternity, or if I just fallen into the crowd, just falling on the coattails of mom and dad or being a part of church because that's what I've always done, but yet missed the boat on who Christ is. I pray that even as we break up in our time of application instruction, as we look at specific questions and details of this text, I pray that you would commit Your word to our hearts and you'd cause it to bear fruit that would remain for your glory. Father, what a glorious thing it would be if today would be the day of salvation. So I pray, Father, somebody here this morning that does not know the bread of life, does not know Jesus Christ for who he said he was as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. I pray even this morning they would seek one of the elders out. They would seek mom and dad out and that we could uh, walk through scripture and lead by your grace them to the life-giving source of, of eternal life, and that is Jesus. So, Father, we're reminded this morning, some plants, some water, but you the increase. So, Father, I pray that we would just be humble, we would obey your word, and, Father, that we would see fruit that would remain as a result of looking at your word this morning. We ask all these things in your precious name I pray. Amen. I apologize this morning. I did go a few minutes late, so we need to hustle um, the children to their time again in our back pod and we've got roughly about three to four we might give you five minutes to transition to our application instruction groups right here and uh, we thank you for your time I think I had that off the whole